0: Welcome to Kitchener Public Library's Chapter One podcast, a series to inspire, inform, and entertain, featuring the unique and diverse voices of the Waterloo region. In this episode, our speakers will address the topic of sexual assault and abuse. Listener discretion
1: is advised. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Heald, President and CEO of the Kitchener-Waterloo Community Foundation. In our previous episode, we spoke with Sarah Castleman, Executive Director of the Sexual Assault Support Centre of Waterloo Region, about the crisis we face in this region. We heard a survivor, Diane, tell her story of being assaulted. Today, we're going to focus on what justice and healing looks like for survivors, and we'll hear more from Diane about her experience reporting to police and going through the court process. But first, let's welcome back Sarah. Hi Sarah. What do you think the average person needs to know about sexual assault and our criminal justice system?
0: Thanks, Elizabeth. The whole process, the whole experience looks very different than what you see played out on TV. Sexual assaults have notoriously low reporting rates. Only 5% of sexual assaults are reported to police. The vast majority of survivors choose not to report their experiences for a variety of reasons. According to the research of Dr. Holly Johnson, for every 33 sexual assaults in Canada that are reported, 12 charges are laid, six are prosecuted, and three lead to conviction. Let that sink in.
1: So for every 33 sexual assaults in Canada that are reported to police, there are only three convictions? Unfortunately, yes. There's so much room for improvement in
0: our justice system when it comes to sexual assault, from police responses to prosecution to
2: judges' rulings. Things were kind of, they were spinning out of control for me a little bit. I was becoming overwhelmed. I realized that I was going to have to report the abuse, that it was what was right for me. It was what was going to set me free from what had happened it was basically passing this on for someone else to deal with it wasn't for me to carry anymore so i set up an appointment
1: and i met with police diane decided it was right for her to report so she could pass on the weight she was carrying let's talk more about reporting In 2018, there were 892 sexual violation reports made to Waterloo Region Police Service. Numbers are climbing right now across the province. In July, Statistics Canada reported a 19% increase year over year over the last couple of years in sexual assault reports to police in Ontario. These numbers help explain why waiting lists for counseling and advocacy are growing in communities across Ontario, including right here in Waterloo Region. So, what is it that inspires survivors to report, knowing there are so few convictions, Sarah?
0: Before I weigh in on that, I think it's important for us to recognize the myths out there that impact survivors who are considering reporting. So, one myth is that women regularly lie about being sexually assaulted. Truth is, false reporting is rare. False reports make up between 2 to 4% of all sexual assault allegations. This means it's far more likely that a woman would never report her assault than it is that she would lie about it. This conversation actually reminds me of when Bill Cosby came to our community in 2015. You likely recall that Kitchener was his first international appearance since the allegations against him had resurfaced and multiplied. So some folks were responding to the allegations against Cosby with innocent until proven guilty while they continue to hold him up as an icon. To me and the survivors that were intently listening to the conversation, that response sounded a little bit too much like, I'm going to assume that those women are lying until something convinces me that they're not. Innocent until proven guilty. That concept is fundamental to our justice system. I support giving all those accused of crimes their day in court. At the same time, I'd like to promote the radical idea of applying innocent until proven guilty to survivors. The stats on sexual assault say it's highly unlikely that they're lying, so we should show them some support and some basic human kindness when they disclose. So the answer to your earlier question about why survivors choose to report? Despite the fact that reporting can open survivors' personal lives and personal trauma to scrutiny, many choose to report because they don't want their silence to contribute to someone else being harmed. They often report out of concern
1: for others. Yes, and for many like Diane, it's a step towards letting the burden go. Diane actually experienced sexual abuse by two different offenders in her childhood, which, sadly, isn't uncommon her mother's husband, and then an uncle. She chose to report both men to the police. This is an account of her experience reporting her uncle's abuse. I, I this time, contacted Sask
2: and made an appointment with police to report. And two Sask volunteers attended the police station with me. When I Um, arrived to the police station they gave the volunteers a really hard time which stressed me out Um, they were asking them questions in in a very harsh tone and asking them why they were there and needed to identify themselves and I just felt like that wasn't really fair and it was very uncomfortable for me and it really took the focus for me off of why I was there And then I sat down to give my statement in a little room, and the officer, in his officer tone, uh, let me know that I needed to tell the truth, and if I didn't tell the truth, we were going to have problems. And that created quite a bit of panic in me, and I wanted to run because I didn't understand why the victim would be told to tell the truth. I didn't understand why he didn't understand how much courage it took to come forward and talk about how someone had violated me.
1: Diane's experience reporting to police was difficult. I've heard a lot recently, Sarah, about the work you and other advocates in our community and across Canada have been doing with police to improve responses to survivors. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yes. A major Global and Mail investigative series into police-reported sexual assaults in 2017 exposed a troubling situation. It revealed that 19.4% of sexual assault reports across Canada were being classified as unfounded. So that means in the opinion of police, a crime was neither attempted nor occurred. So in Waterloo Region, our stats were even higher. 27% of sexual assault cases were being labeled unfounded. Due to the public pressure from this reporting, many police forces began reviewing their past sexual assault files, and I was invited, along with a few other advocates from our community, to audit local sexual assault cases labeled Unfounded. Our team made a number of recommendations to police on how to begin to improve processes locally. I know that the Chief of Police has been working to live out those recommendations, but this type of systemic change takes time. Overall, the most promising practice that's just emerged is to have survivor advocates such as ourselves review investigations on a regular basis and provide police with feedback. In particular, reviewers look for evidence of gender bias
1: in police investigations. And while much of the attention as of late has been on police responses to sexual assault, we can't forget that the prosecution of sexual assaults is an important part of the equation. The Crown needs to understand and have expertise in sexual assault trials, and judges need to be informed on the issues. I was forced to testify in front of a room full of my aunts and
2: uncles who were there to support the person who had assaulted me as a very small child. When I sat down in the courtroom, his wife had said, you're going down. I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't understand why he had so many supporters. At some point in the trial, or sometime before the trial started, they had decided to remove my one support person So Sask had to, on very short notice, come up with a different plan and and provide me with a different support person so that I could testify feeling safely. After I testified, the judge, um, before it was time for him to bring down a verdict, had um, quite a lengthy address for the courtroom. And he said that he found me to be believable. And then he, in the next breath, acquitted Um, My uncle of all charges. And so I was left to wonder how I am a believable person, and he was acquitted. It didn't make sense. But I accepted that verdict because I expected that verdict. It isn't often that historical cases are found guilty, and I knew that going in.
0: This is the piece that the general public doesn't always understand. Our criminal justice system says that guilt needs to be determined beyond a reasonable doubt. In many sexual assault trials, if the case was determined on a balance of probabilities, we'd see so many more guilty verdicts. Now I'm not advocating that we have a system built on a balance of probabilities. What I'm saying is in our justice system, a not guilty verdict certainly doesn't mean that someone's been found innocent. Imagine how it feels for survivors when people interpret a trial that way. Going to court as a survivor is an incredibly brave and difficult thing to do. In fact, the thought of it prevents many from coming forward. Not only do you have to face the person who assaulted you, but so much of your life and your personal trauma is on display. Your character and credibility are questioned. The process can be re-traumatizing for survivors, especially without the right supports.
1: I can only imagine what a comfort it is for survivors to have your team, Sarah, stand with them through this process. I think that's one of the best things about a community-based sexual assault support center. Staff and volunteers are there to walk alongside survivors and support them with their choices. Sometimes the journey is counseling, and sometimes it's a longer, more complicated process that involves the hospital, the police, the courts, and various other systems. It's amazing how resilient survivors can be with the right support. If I hadn't have
2: accepted, if I hadn't have reached out and got help as soon as, as I, I needed, you know, if I hadn't have reached out that day, I can't imagine where I'd been because living on autopilot was not working. So much has changed in my life, including how I am and how I respond to people and how I even treat myself. Um, I feel very fortunate that I not only you know reached out, but that I continued to reach out for help. and that when other people believed in me for the first time ever that I accepted I accepted that care from them. I'm not ashamed. I feel like um, the shame uh, isn't for me to carry, that the person that needs to feel shame is the person that perpetrated the crime not the person who experienced the crime and I feel like anybody that disagrees with that that's a reflection of them and their values not a reflection of me and my values and so I feel like I can honestly say I do not carry any shame for what happened to me I um I don't carry any guilt for how I handled the situation. I did the best I could with what I had.
0: I've been working at our center in various capacities for 17 years. The first three as a volunteer. I can say in all honesty, when I hear the kind of thing that Diane just shared, I'm so moved and I feel so proud of our team. We have an incredible and passionate team at our center who care deeply about survivors in our community. It's because my team cares that it's so difficult to put survivors on our waiting list when they reach out to us for support. As we shared in our first podcast, in the post-MeToo era, we've been flooded with calls for support.
1: And that's exactly why we're doing this podcast. Please visit www.sascwr.org to learn how you can make a difference. Survivors languishing on wait lists is not okay. The idea that there is no money to either end violence or support those impacted by it should be challenged. There is money when something is a priority for an individual, a community, a province or a nation. There is so much to be done and so much that you as an individual can do. Become a monthly donor. Establish an endowment fund with Kitchener Waterloo Community Foundation and have the grants go in perpetuity to charities doing this work. Talk to our politicians, work to amplify the voice of your community-based sexual assault support center, and help us make all residents of Waterloo Region understand this issue and take action. In our first two episodes, we explored the cultural shift we've experienced and how more survivors are reaching out for support than ever before. We also talked about the unique and critical role that community-based sexual assault support centers play in supporting survivors through their healing journey. In our next episode, we will discuss prevention and upstream solutions, an important component of the work at the Sexual Assault Support Center in Waterloo Region. It's going to be an uplifting conversation because we're approaching this work in innovative ways here in Waterloo Region. This is Elizabeth Heald from the Kitchener Waterloo Community Foundation, speaking today with Sarah Castleman of the Sexual Assault Support Center of Waterloo Region. Thank you so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to Chapter One, the podcast series of the Kitchener Public Library. Join us next time for the unique and diverse voices of the Waterloo Region.